What up, everybody? I'm Ed, and this is Current History. And today, we're going to talk about Joe Manchin. Because this guy really just messed up my morning today with a new op-ed that he published. And this op-ed was titled, Why I'm Voting Against the For the People Act. (sighs) Oh, and he also tossed in there that he's still not going to end the filibuster which he has been getting increasingly angry at reporters for asking, because it's the same every time. He says no. No, he's not for ending the filibuster. No, no, he's still not ending for the filibuster, thank you very much. He gets asked it literally every single day, because Joe Manchin has the privilege of being one of the very, very few people left in the Senate who wants to reach a bipartisan consensus in a time of deeply partisan politics. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, because first off, I'd like to just congratulate myself for this actually being current history. We're talking about something that came out today. This is like fully happening. But that also means that this is going to have a looser, more improvisational tone to it and less of a scripted vibe. So get ready for that. Also, fair warning that I have not read the two bills that we're going to be discussing today, H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Civil Rights Act. No, I have not read through the whole bill. If there's a secret clause in there that makes AOC dictator for life, I, I don't know. Don't at me. But I have read some summaries. I have read a lot about what people think the effects that these laws will have. And so I want to talk about a little nugget of hope in Joe Manchin's blanket of sadness that he unleashed on me with this op-ed. Because one of the key statements that Manchin says is that he's not for H.R. 1, the For the People Act, but that he does support the John Lewis Civil Rights Act, and that Lisa Murkowski, a Republican senator, might be willing to come on board, and maybe that's bipartisan enough for him. Okay. So buckle up for just an unhinged Joe Manchin rant. And at the whole gid dang Senate. So what is the what is the purpose of the Senate? Why 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 do we have a Senate? Why do we even have this body? Why is the House not good enough? Well, because our founders were a bunch of land-owning white dudes from a million years ago who lived in places like West Virginia. And they wanted to make it so that only fancy landowning white men like them could have any control over the government. And the House, hmm, that's too democratic. It responds to the people. It gets voted out every two years. What the people wants is actually represented in the House. So we can't have that unfiltered running wild on our government, all that democracy. So... What do we do? We staple on an institution that was just copied off of the notes of Britain, which was the House of Lords. A second body, which would give a check onto the power of the landed aristocrats over those populace in the elected assembly. That's what the Senate has at its roots. The Senate wasn't even democratically elected until relatively recently, historically speaking. Back in the day, the Senate was voted on by states, like it was representatives from state governments, and it wasn't even a thing that people voted on. 
there there had to be reforms made to turn Senate elections into a even baseline democratic system. And then we get into the other basic undemocratic part of the Senate, that it represents land and not people. There are a billion frickin' people in California, and how many senators do they get? Two. Oh, but Edson, the it's all weighed out in the House, where it is, instead of being represented by land, it's represented by population. Except they capped the amount of population, the amount that a population can affect how many representatives you get, so that California doesn't, still isn't properly represented in the House, and then also is horribly represented in the Senate, whereas a state like Wyoming is massively more represented in the Senate. So this base undemocraticness also hitches into a problem for the Democratic Party because they suck at places that are big, square, and mostly rural areas. Like, that's not the, that's not the areas that the Democrats compete well in, and those are the areas that have a butt-ton of senators. So right off the bat, there's like a bunch of problems cooked into the basic nature of the Senate that make them A, undemocratic in that they don't respond well to popular pressure, the will of the people at large, and B, are anti-democratic as in against the party, as because they're just built-in disadvantages for Democrats. Which all, which brings us to the 2020 election, and despite being projected to win big and win seats all over the place and, ooh, maybe Texas is in play, the Democrats kind of got shellacked when it came to the Senate and they lost seats in the House, even while kicking out Trump, which, thank God, that happened. And to all the people that are advocating for harsh measures against Joe Manchin, like kicking him out of the party or whatever, just think for one second what how different life would be if Joe Manchin just decided f this switch teams and suddenly Mitch McConnell was majority leader in the Senate and now not you don't have to convince a couple republicans to get something passed you have to convince Mitch McConnell like literally Darth Vader you've got to like sit down with him and negotiate him not blowing up your planets with a death star so Honestly, like, be thankful for Joe Manchin's mere existence, even when he is horribly, horribly annoying. Uh, add on to the list for people to be annoyed at, Cal Cunningham, the Senate candidate from North Carolina, who totally had it in the bag, but tripped on the goddamn finish line because this idiot couldn't keep his dick in his pants and his sex with his mistress in his head spills his freaking purse all over everything, all this comes out in a big sex scandal, completely blows it. If we had him, we'd be talking about a 51-49 Senate, and there'd be at least a little leeway. There'd be room for one person to take a stand and be annoying and, I'm not comfortable with this, and we could still do something. As is, we need literally every single vote in order to get anything done, ever. And even then, that doesn't defeat the filibuster. Uh, 
Because, oh yeah, the Senate also has this built-in stupid procedural rule that is nowhere in the Constitution. This is literally, the, like, this is like the kid on the playground who, like, when you catch up to him and tag him, he's like, no, there, there's a safe zone here. I just made it. I declared it. Also, I'm not it, and you're not it either. Like, dude, you can't just make up rules and pretend like they're official. We live in a society. But the Senate has developed this rule that in order to end debate on something, you need 60 votes. And in the old days, it, debate meant you, you had to keep debating. Like, if you wanted to stop a bill by filibustering it, you had to stand up there and read Green Eggs and Ham until the time expired or your feet collapsed from underneath you. But now, you don't even need to do that. You can filibuster by email. Uh, like, Congress has been doing remote work in this one way for ages, where you can just say, hey, for the record, like, I declare filibuster, and your little Michael Scott butt can just stop anything. Any senator. And once you declare filibuster... The other side needs to get 60 votes in order to do something, which 99% of the time means they have to get 10 to nearly 10 of the other side to join with them, which I don't know if you've looked outside in our political environment, but that is impossible. There are not 10 senators on in either party, on either side, all together, collectively, like it doesn't matter. There are not that many people who are like, hmm... You're like, I put the good of the country above my own party's interests. Like, that's, that's, that's not the game we've been playing here for ages. But good old Joe Manchin still thinks that it is. And so even when people like Biden, who, you like, I would have expected this kind of behavior from him. This, like, it, from the campaign, it really sounded like Biden was cruising in for a, like, Oh man, we're gonna try to compromise and if we and play the whole like Lucy and the ball like oh oh we're gonna hold the football for you this time and then yank it away at the last second. But honestly, Joe Biden has not put up with any of that nonsense. He was VP through the Obama years, so he's played this game with the Republicans time after time. They always pull the football away. There's there's not 10 that aren't willing to pull the football away. But we have to make a good show of trying to kick the football and missing in order to satisfy Joe Manchin. So that brings us to the big question, the million-dollar question, the thing that everybody wants to know, because... Joe Manchin is king of the world in American politics right now. Nothing passes without him. Nothing, go, nothing flies without his say-so. So what is Joe Manchin, what is Joe Manchin thinking? What, what is his plan? Like, what, what, what is his theory of the case? How does he see success coming from that? Well, I think I get it. So here goes. Joe Manchin seems to have had a completely different takeaway from the January 6th insurrection as most other people. 
I myself saw the January 6th attack, and my response is, oh man, we need to do something about this. Like, this is fascism. Like, I... It's hard to mince words on this. Like, this is literally how Mussolini took over Italy. This is how Hitler took over Germany. Step one, you get an angry militia. Step two, you use them against the government to take power, hold power, intimidate elected officials. That's fascism. Like, that's it. If anyone was, like, waiting for when the pot would get hot enough or whatever... That's the line, guys. So when I see that, I think, oh man, we as a democratic country, like a country with a democracy, that democracy needs to do something to respond to this threat, or else it's going to go quiet into that good night. Like, guys, we've got to do something. We've got to secure voting rights. We've got to... Make sure that groups that want to actually destroy democracy don't take power. That is not what Joe Manchin saw. Joe Manchin saw the same thing. He appreciates the threat. But what he saw is, oh man, we are one partisan event away from like Civil War style violence in the streets. Like, there are right-wing militias that are waiting, that are hoping, that are like, please, they, they would love, love nothing more than something that the Democrats did that they can sell as a power grab, as like, the Democrats are going to pass this voting bill, they're going to seize power forever on bullshit, And that's why you need to take your gun and fight right now because they've got a lot of people with a lot of guns and they figure that if it comes to a who can show up with more guns fight, then maybe they'll win. So what Joe Manchin is seeing is like, hmm, do I want to be the guy that like compromised and let it happen the thing that tore us apart into full-on civil war, into and even if not full-on civil war, it threw us into full-scale political violence. Because that's the next step on the, like, country decline scale. You know, like, when other democracies have failed, as ours is currently doing, which is what happens when you have a rule that requires compromise, and so no one ever compromises you end up with where we are now, which is a government that cannot function. And so radicals begin to be the people that are listened to more and more. Radicals on the left, radicals on the right. Some of which are proposing taking more power. You're like fixing the gridlock by taking more power decisively for their side, which is dangerous. So that's where I think Joe Manchin is coming from. He's coming, he's like, in in secret Hitler, he's like, I want to not be the one to put the last policy in place that destroys democracy. He's like, uh, job number one, as the guy that gets to approve everything, 
He's like, he has designated himself as the bipartisanship gatekeeper. If something is not bipartisan enough, Joe Manchin has declared that he will not let it through the gate, and that is how he is going to try to preserve democracy. Now, I would argue that this is not the right way to preserve democracy, because in order to prove that democracy works as a system, it has to do something. Like, Joe Manchin seems to be thinking that the problem is in passing new laws, like another law that gets passed that's partisan and bad, that would set off decline. That would be the end of democracy. So therefore, the alternative is to do nothing. Doing nothing is not an option. Doing nothing is just quietly dying. That's just because if nothing is done, then Republican state legislatures will get to draw maps because in all the Democratic, uh, in many of the heavily Democrat-controlled states, they have voluntarily given up the right to partisan redistricting to nonpartisan commissions. So as with everything in American politics, we have the Democrats giving up power to play nice and we have the Republicans seizing power and spitting in their face. But for some reason, only one side is bound to bipartisanship. It's the nature of the game. So that brings us to my problems with Joe Manchin's theory of the case. His, his idea of like, okay, if, if we can just preserve the status quo of democracy, then that is fine. And that is another reason why I think he defends the filibuster, because the filibuster is a great tool for preventing problem, preventing new bad laws. The filibuster makes it so that any law that passes, no matter what, like any law that even gets to the president's desk, it must have some bipartisan agreement, and so it must not you like attack one side inordinately or else it wouldn't get that bipartisan agreement. I just fundamentally don't think that that block is functional anymore. Like it may have been a thing that forced compromise in the past. Now it doesn't force compromise. And also newsflash Joe Manchin, what do the two parties want? How, how do the two parties win? The Democrats win by convincing everyone to work together and put aside their differences and rather than focus on tribalism and hate to set aside their differences and sing kumbaya around the campfire while we settle all our problems by voting. Like we win by selling a pie in the sky vision. We win by selling hope and change and the possibility of positive effects on your life. The Republicans win by selling that hope and change is BS, that the government is incompetent, that everything should be privatized, and that the government running things is bad. You're like, they win when the government fails. Even when they're in charge of it, they win when government is ineffective and then stays out of things, which perfectly lines up with the filibuster. Because guess what? The filibuster has already been ended for all the things that the Republicans care about. 
There is no filibuster for judge appointments, even if the Supreme Court only takes 51 votes to put PJ and Squeeze best drinking buddy on the Supreme Court, only takes 51 votes to pass tax cuts through reconciliation. So what do the Republicans want that can be blocked by the filibuster? What, what policy positions do they have that the removal of the filibuster would solve for them? This goes to, in Joe Manchin's op-ed, he mentions that in 2017, Trump was calling for the end of the filibuster, and he was one of the Senate Democrats that proudly stood against this attack on our institutions, blah, blah, blah. Well, why? Why was Trump calling for the end of the filibuster in 2017? He was calling for the end of the filibuster because he's an idiot and he doesn't understand how the Senate works. And as soon as he called for it, Mitch McConnell was like, yeah, no, we're definitely not doing that. Trump wanted to end the filibuster so that they could pass the tax cut, which guess what? They did it through reconciliation because it's purely budgetary. So you only need 51 votes for those. And then they tried to pass the Obamacare repeal also through budget reconciliation in order to dodge the filibuster. And McCain epically slapped it down at the last second, which was glorious. And if you haven't seen the video of this old man walking in, like, from active brain surgery, I think it was, tossing a thumbs down as the whole room, like, loses their mind. It's great. It's it's great television. Great moment. McCain, what a guy, saving the Affordable Care Act with one aggressive thumbs down. But those were all done through budget reconciliation, which only requires 51 votes. If it's only budgetary, if it's only about money, if it's simple and is just like kicking the can down the road stuff, you only need 51 votes. Which means anything that the Democrats want to do, oh yeah, that can be filibustered. Anything the Republicans want to do either can't be filibustered or is generally so horrendously unpopular that them even trying it would be terrible. Like, if they tried to ban abortions is, like, one of the things. Like, people don't support that broadly. You Like, it would lose them single-issue voters. It would lose them a lot of people that don't actually want to see that happen. Not that we should go will- willy-nilly into that kind of threat. Because what Joe Manchin brings up, we should take seriously. Without the filibuster... Anyone who gets control of all three branches can start passing laws if they have party unity. That could be pretty scary with the current Republican Party that we've got right now. But I would argue that that is more of a democratic system. Like, look, if if one party takes the presidency, the House, and the Senate— They deserve, clearly, they have a mandate from the people to do what they want to do. A lot of people voted for them, more than for the other guy. They have a mandate to do something. If they get there, and even though they control all three chunks, they can't do their agenda, that's not democracy. Like, that's a stalled government that is ineffective, So I hope that clears up a little bit on 
what's going on in Joe Manchin's head, what's going on as far as power is concerned. So now let's get to this op-ed. So in this op-ed, where Manchin leads with saying that he's voting, that he will not be voting for the For the People Act, Manchin lays out a couple of his positions very clearly and kind of why he's pushing for them. So obviously the main one is that he doesn't support the For the People Act and that he is not for ending the filibuster for voting changes, especially because he doesn't think that voting changes should be made in a non-bipartisan manner, which I think is reasonable as a standard. Like, honestly, no, like, single-party-driven voting changes is possibly a good idea, I think. So, in defense of his not voting for the For the People Act, he says he couches his disapproval of it in the fact that the Republican senators, the seven Republican senators who voted for the January 6th commission, which were considering, like, the good guys. Like, there's seven Republicans left who acknowledge reality, don't want a fascist takeover of our government. Like, there it is. There's your seven people who aren't bananas in the Republican Senate side. And Joe Manchin is basing his opposition to the For the People Act on the fact that none of those seven support even the For the People Act. So he's saying, why? Is it because those people are our enemies? Is it because those people are crazy fascists? No. It's because those people oppose you know, like voting changes that would directly go against Republican goals, would make it harder for Republicans to win because, generally speaking, Republicans win when voter turnout is low, Democrats win when voter turnout is high, is at least a commonly believed truism in politics. Whether it's actually the case or not, according to what data I've seen, it's kind of BS, but who knows. Okay. So Joe Manchin leads with just stabbing my dreams in the heart by blocking this For the People Act. But here's the ray of sunshine in this. In Joe Manchin's kind of trying to do a slap down the dream but provide the the like possibility here. Cuz he says For the People Act too partisan, too it's too crazy to do automatic voter registration. You're like, oh man, like basic stuff that countries that actually want people to vote have. That would be too partisan. But the John Lewis Civil Rights Act, now that, that could fly. Joe Manchin supports that. He's got um, Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator from Alaska, on board for that. So what he's saying is, now the For the People Act, that's, that's crazy partisan garbage, but this John Lewis Civil Rights Act, this is the money. This is like the thing that we could actually get bipartisan support for. So in this, I wanted to know, what are these two laws? What are the differences between them? Is the For the People Act partisan? 
And what does the John Lewis Civil Rights Act do? Does that meet the challenge of the time? So first, let's jump into the For the People Act, which is apparently a partisan dumpster fire, according to Joe Manchin. So now we've reached the part of this podcast where I read the stuff that HR1 does and we cry about the bill that it sounds like never will be and all the good things that it could do. So HR1 would expand voter registration with both automatic and same-day registration. So the second you turn 18, you'd automatically be registered. And if you weren't registered in a, in a state, you could register on the same day if you saw that there were polling locations up. It would also expand vote by mail and early voting by doing things like making it so that you can request mail-in ballots without an excuse. Because in some states, you need to prove that you can't show up to a polling location. Um, it would limit removing voters from voter rolls, which is claimed that states do it to just to get rid of like dead people and people who've moved away but a lot of republican states use it very very specifically to remove people that they think haven't voted in a while may not check their voter registration and then one of the best ones it would require states to establish independent redistricting commissions now this is one of my personal things of like this needs to happen because Partisan redistricting and gerrymandering is bananas in this country, and it's super, super undemocratic. It is politicians getting to pick their constituents rather than constituents getting to pick their politicians, and it's got to stop. It's also contributing to the partisan atmosphere in this country, because if most districts are either safe Democrat or safe Republican— it means that nobody ever has to listen to the other side because if your if your district is 70% republican and you're guaranteed to win you just need to hit base issues you need to be the most republican republican or you need to be the most democratic democrat you only need to play to your own side when your district only has one side into it because it was specifically designed that way so hr1 would force independent redistricting commissions everywhere. Boom. Problem solved. Gerrymandering dead as a strategy instantly. Then there's a whole bunch of stuff on election security, stuff like having uh, intelligence sharing between state elected officials, a national strategy to protect voting, and a legislative branch national commission to protect U.S. democratic institutions, which all sounds fine. Then we get into uh, just the, the bill, the part of the bill that I will cry over not becoming reality, the campaign finance section. So this bill would introduce uh, voluntary public financing for campaigns. So if you got a donation of $1 from somebody, that would be matched by this government program at a 6 to 1 ratio. So for every dollar donated, you would get 6 bucks. This money would come from what they're calling a Freedom from Influence Fund, which would be collected from uh, a fee charged to, uh, in addition on criminal and civil fines paid by banks and corporations that commit corporate malfeasance. 
So it would be paying to make our democracy more democratic by making more of donations and money sourced from individuals rather than companies at the expense of companies that break laws. It's amazing. I love it. It would also have a bunch of stuff for increasing campaign finance donations, like requiring super PACs to disclose where they get their money from because they don't have to. And uh, it would also express support for a constitutional amendment overturning Citizens United, which I would love. We got to get money out of politics. Corporations are not people. It's ridiculous. So that's H.R. 1. That's the crazy partisan bill. Oh, yeah. Uh, And at the very end, it also requires that the president and the vice president have to disclose 10 years of tax returns. Just slide that one right in there at the end. Just a little, like, also, hey, Trump, we hate you. So that's apparently partisan garbage that can never pass. My dreams are dead, and they never can be. So what is the John Lewis Civil Rights Act, the thing that Joe Manchin actually seems interested in passing and seems like he would be willing to, like, throw around some weight to make happen? Now, for the John Lewis Civil Rights Act, you need a little bit of context. So, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down a major portion of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in a 5-4 decision in the case of Shelby County v. Holder. Now, they struck down Section 4B, which required that certain states be subject to federal preclearance before changing election laws. So, in other words, you had to ask mommy and daddy federal government before you changed your election laws, if you fit this formula. This chunk of the law was struck down on the basis that that formula was kind of stupid, which it was. Now, the formula is, in order to be put under preclearance, you need to have had voting tests in place on November 1st, 1964, and a turnout of less than 50% in the 1964 presidential election. So in other words, if you had one specific, like, Jim Crow rule, uh, voting tests, so like IQ tests, so like basic citizenship information and English tests before you are allowed to vote, specifically designed to prevent illiterate people and minorities from voting, if you had these random conditions in 1964, then you were on perpetual federal, you like have to ask mommy and daddy in order to change voting laws forever. So the Supreme Court said that's kind of dumb. That requirement is too old and too random to keep subjecting people to this. So they struck it down. You're like, okay, the f- that formula is wrong, so nobody is under federal preclearance until a new formula is made. And so since the Supreme Court decision, we've had all kinds of problems. So within 24 hours, Texas had announced strict voter ID laws. A lot of these states put in place voter ID laws, and they were prevented from putting voter ID laws previously by this federal preclearance requirement. The Supreme Court decision has also led to a huge increase in purging voters from voter rolls, and the Brennan Center for Justice concluded that 2 million more people were purged from the voter rolls from 2012 to 2016 than would have under the old rolls. 
Meanwhile, in North Carolina, they passed a law, HB 589, which had strict photo ID requirements, eliminated same-day voter registration, shortened the early voting period, and banned early voting on Sundays, a move that's generally taken as directly targeting the Souls to the Polls initiative, in which black people are organized through their church to vote on Sundays. When North Korea... And North Korea... North Korea, North Carolina admitted in court that this was because the counties that offered it were likely to have higher black populations. So HB 589 was struck down by a U.S. Court of Appeals on the basis that the law was designed to, quote, target African Americans with almost surgical precision. This particular law was struck down. There's something like 300 making their way down the pipeline in various states. This is why we don't have the opportunity to just sit back and do nothing if Joe Manchin wants to block stuff up for bipartisanship. If we don't stop these laws, we're gonna have a problem. But this is why it's good that he supports the John Lewis Civil Rights Act, because it would do something about this stuff. So what does the bill do? The bill would expand uh, the way that U.S. attorney generals can send federal observers to areas the courts deem necessary. So it would allow new ways for the federal government to observe elections, and it would allow the courts to block all new election policy in a wide range of circumstances. It would also restore that federal preclearance on the requirement of a bunch of stuff, but mainly any state that has had voting rights violations, and especially any state that has had voting rights violations that occurred because of state policy. If you have a, a couple of those in the previous 25 years, boom, suddenly you're on federal preclearance and you've got to ask mommy and daddy federal government every single time you want to change your voting laws and you have to prove in court that they don't negatively affect people based on race, color, or being a language minority group. So this would put a bunch of states under the Voting Rights Act, uh, including Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, California, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, New York, North Carolina, South Dakota, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia. So some Democratic states, a bunch of Republican states, all would be put under preclearance under the voting rights under the John Lewis Civil Rights Act as it stands now. It would also put a bunch of uh, these federal uh, oversight requirements over anything that changes how um, like minorities have political power. Like, if there's a district uh, that is majority black, if you attempted some gerrymandering to change or mess with or reduce the power of certain districts, that would be put under federal preclearance. You would need to prove to judges and the federal government that it didn't negatively affect minorities. Uh, it would also put a standard on voter ID laws, so in order to... Uh, put voter ID laws, you could have voter ID requirements, but they would have to meet federal requirements. They would not have to be any stricter than the federal requirements. So my point with all of this is that while Joe Manchin is not interested in passing the dream bill, the one that I think would actually really change things, that could actually really make things better, 
he is interested in passing the John Lewis Civil Rights Act, which does have a lot of positive changes in it. If they can get it through, it would go a long way towards stopping the most egregious attacks on voting rights that are happening at the state level. I really hope he can do it. I really hope that he either can get 10 Republicans to vote for this, or that he eventually realizes that they won't and agrees to end the filibuster in order to pass the John Lewis Civil Rights Act. If he does, there is still a chance that we can preserve democracy even through another Republican government. If this doesn't pass then I don't know how well we're going to make it through another Republican government. Maybe we get someone normal. Maybe we get another Trump, and we're on a path towards authoritarianism. Who knows? Now it's up to Joe Manchin and his quest for bipartisanship, and we'll see if he finds any windmills to tip at here. We can only hope that he either succeeds or comes to his senses. And that's what I got on Joe Manchin.